One of the worst things in the whole human experience, one of the most deflating things to be endured in the whole of existential salience is to go to a restaurant and finish your meal and still be hungry. Does anybody else hate that? Like you, you made a trip for this thing and you waited in line for this thing and then you waited just to wait some more and then you pay a lot of money for something that just looks really pretty but ultimately just leaves you empty inside, literally, physically. And part of your soul dies. This happened last week. I was on a, on a date with my wife and as I was signing the check, she's like, how was your meal? And I was like, it was a good appetizer. <laughs> but at least I've got the gospel <laughs> Such is the nature of this world. Such are the things of this earth, just secular morality, you know, knowledge apart from God, the pursuit of just worldly riches and worldly success, it will all just leave you empty inside. And it is in the endeavor of evangelizing people and equipping a church for ministry in the context of such a culture that Paul wrote Timothy. He wrote 1 Timothy, which we conclude today, 2 Timothy, which we endeavor to launch next week in the book of Titus. We'll close out this series known as the Pastoral Epistles, letters written from Paul to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. Paul has been mentoring Timothy through the course of these letters. And as we launched this series, we encouraged Paul's to find Timothy's and Timothy's to find Paul's. If God's called you to mentor somebody or if God's called you to find somebody to mentor you, this is a beautiful tradition that actually sets the context for these books. Now, if you have lost touch with your Timothy, you lost touch with your Paul, pull out your smartphone right now and reach out to him or her. Okay, nobody's going to judge you for pulling out your, you don't have to wait until the end of the sermon to apply the sermon. And there's nothing special about this carpet. This is like, no, this is where we apply the word of God. No, this carpet is identical to that carpet. It's identical to the carpet you're sitting over right now, right? So you pull out your phone, reach out to your Timothy, reach out to your Paul. By the way, the ratio of Paul's seeking Timothy's at Highlands and Timothy's seeking Paul's at Highlands as we launch this series it was one to one. Every young adult looking for a mentor and every seasoned veteran of the faith looking for someone to disciple found one another. It is almost as though God is sovereign or something. It's amazing. So if you've lost touch with your Paul, lost touch with your Timothy, reestablish that meeting and schedule a time to get a burrito right, with your smartphone right now. This series is titled Bold Church because it requires a bold church to teach it. And if you're not bold before, it'll make you bold by the time you're done. The books of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus contain some of the most controversial and offensive passages in all of Scripture. And if you haven't been offended yet, you will be. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, you get to be offended, and you get to be offended, and you get to be offended, and you get to be offended. Everybody gets offended by 1 Timothy 6. Some crucial cultural contextual barriers to overcome to really grasp what this text says. 
There are words in the opening verses that will trigger and offend if you don't understand them in light of their original context. I have seen the anti-Christian militant atheist straw man built of the Bible, supposing that the Bible actually approves of the horrors of chattel slavery, and that is not the case. I've heard the first two verses we're going to study today used against the Bible itself, saying, see, it condones and encourages slavery. When we think slavery automatically, quite understandably, we immediately associate it with chattel slavery, such as was practiced at, at the beginning of our country and in Europe at the same time. We think about the African slave trade, which was based on ethnicity, which was, which was a lifelong enslavement, which received zero payment, and which included horrific abuses was dehumanizing. Here's why that makes it difficult for us. That is not the way slavery worked in ancient Ephesus. So if we wear the glasses of American citizens with an American history understanding of slavery and we read that into the text, we are missing what Paul is actually describing. In ancient Ephesus, in this era, slavery was much more akin to indentured servitude, meaning it was actually entered into willingly. So it had nothing whatsoever at all to do with, with ethnicity. It was actually a last resort effort to escape poverty. It was usually in, uh, entered into for a, a tenure of about seven years, and you were paid for your work. And during that time, you would live at the master's house and just bank your salary, and at the end of seven years, you'd be money ahead. Furthermore, it was not abusive and dehumanizing the way that chattel slavery is. That is the particular type of slavery that we saw in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, when the, when the Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians. Right? Let nobody say that the Bible condones slavery. Literally, the second book of the Bible is titled Exodus, as in Exodus from slavery in Egypt. All right? That was chattel slavery. It was offensive to God, and God speaks judgment upon nations that practice that. This particular brand of slavery that, was, that existed in, in the context of Ephesus it was radically different, it was temporary, it was not ethnocentric, it was paid, and it was much more humane. Nonetheless, nonetheless, it's still laborious, right? You're still, you're still doing intense labor for a master. It's still, a, it's still rough work, right? You are still, in fact, considered a doulos, a slave, a bond servant. And so you're in a rough place in life. Paul is going to speak directly to people who are in that particular situation. So as we read the word slave in the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6, we have to put on the glasses of the original context, ancient Ephesus. All right? If you, my militant atheist friend, my skeptical friend, have seen the critique that Scripture would condone slavery as we understand slavery, woefully misinformed, now morally obligated to provide this essential piece of context that clarifies. Moreover, we'll see in the opening verses there actually is a beautiful message in these, but we have to first disarm the trigger associated with the word because of our context. If we obfuscate the intent and the meaning of the first two verses because of the emotional baggage associated with that word and our context and what that means to Americans, we can miss something quite beautiful. Now, running the full gamut, Paul, by the end of the chapter, is gonna speak directly to rich people. So in the opening verses, he speaks to slaves. 
In the closing verses, he speaks directly to rich people. And along the way, in the very middle, comes one of the most beautiful and soaring and poetic doxologies in all the Bible. Some of the most soaring and exquisite words of praise ever written about God are in this chapter. So let's look together at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Does that remind anybody of your Facebook feed? <laughs> Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. That's radical. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Isn't that radical? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, Faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Wow, it's like the fireworks finale just went off. But there are more fireworks. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. 
grace be with you. You'll see these quotation marks around the word knowledge so as to mock it. In the original context, that was because of the prevalent teaching of the Gnostics, so named for the Greek word gnosko, meaning knowledge. The Gnostics were an ancient dualist religion who predated the birth of Christ. They divided into the camps of the Epicureans and the Stoics, and they infiltrated the early church so as to proselytize people away from Jesus, authoring fraudulent gospels found among the scrolls at Nag Hammadi. It was to these scrolls that Dan Brown referred in many of his fictional books. The Gnostics were trying to turn people away from Jesus by claiming, I got special knowledge from God. And with that special knowledge, it would reach out and they would take people away from the faith. It was this infiltration and this systematic proselytization that was the impetus behind the authorship of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. So pray for us at high school camp this year because I'm going to teach the high schoolers verse by verse through 1 John this summer. This Gnosticism led to this false knowledge. That's why Paul is using quotation marks around the word knowledge, because it's not knowledge at all. It's, it's not teaching at all. It's not wisdom at all. Ultimately, it just leaves you empty inside. All right, just like the meal I paid a lot of money for last week. <laughs> Let's go back through this chapter, chunk by chunk, beginning with the ever so offensive and controversial first two verses. Let it be said, let it be noted that the first two verses minister to people who are enslaved. Now, even, in, even, even with the disparity of the, of the context between our historical understanding of slavery insofar as it pertains to American history and the actual form of slavery as it was understood in ancient Ephesus, the fact that slaves would be addressed and ministered to this way puts the Bible leagues ahead of the way that it's often mischaracterized. Ancient chattel slavery would seek to make sure that slaves never get ministered to. In fact, to maintain, they would take measures to see to it that never became literate. But the Bible speaks to people who were under, under a yoke of slavery as bond servants. It addresses slaves in a way that we contextually could understand it as employees. Because these were, in fact, paid bond servants, and they were doing some grueling work some of you may not have you know, signed a contract or worked for somebody for seven years for, for minimal pay, but you could probably relate to it if you've got a crummy boss. The original context was to see to it that employees did not revile the name of God to their employers. Look, if you, if you profess the name of Christ, you're gonna come under scrutiny. Scrutiny that your coworkers of other worldviews would not come under. Right, you're gonna, the bar is higher for you than it is for your coworkers who profess other gods. And you will face difficulty and be put under a microscope and your life will become more difficult precisely because you profess Jesus Christ. Welcome to Highlands Community Church. Your life's gonna be more difficult because you proclaim Christ. You're gonna be held to a different standard. So see to it, in accordance with these first few verses, that you do not cause your boss to revile God, to revile the name of God, the teachings of God. Rather, endeavor by virtue of your work ethic and your integrity and your grace to live out an example of the gospel for your employer. Likewise, in these verses, you see that you actually share a camaraderie. If your boss is a Christian, you share then a bond of love that transcends your professional relationship even. In verses one and two, the basic message, the heart of the whole thing, 
is the gospel. To see to it that the gospel is not reviled by employers. Now, from here, Paul then transitions to false teaching and people who have an unhealthy craving for controversy. Did you see that in verse four? It's an unhealthy craving for controversy. A craving. Do you see this? Have you encountered this today? People who crave controversy? People who desire it, actually seek it out and cause it when it's not there? A craving for controversy. I mean, I'll be forthright and confess, there was a time when I enjoyed controversy. There was a time when, in my flesh, I just liked debating people, especially publicly if I knew that I was right. If I knew that I was right, I had the facts on my side and had the evidence to prove it, I enjoyed, I enjoyed defeating people in debate because I felt superior to them. I would take the truth and fashion it like a bat and then bop my opponent on the head with the truth. Ha! I win! I'm right! See? All right, here's something that if I had a time machine, I'll go back. I would take that truth and I'll bop 23-year-old Jesse on the head with it because I committed a separate error. How do you think this affected my marriage, by the way? It's not enough. Some of you, your, your mind's about to be blown right now, okay? Like, I wish, I wish 23-year-old me were sitting in that chair right there, okay? It's not enough to be right. You have to be both right and loving. You understand? Be correct all day long. But guess what? If you're a jerk about it, you commit a separate error, okay? It's not enough to just be correct. You have to be both correct <laughs> and loving. C.S. Lewis says, if you are ugly to people with the truth, you make the truth ugly. Okay? If you have correctness on your side, all the facts lined up on your side, and you are unloving to somebody, even if you're correct, you just committed a separate error. What is the one command we are given in the whole New Testament? Love. If you violate the one command that we are given in the whole New Testament, you commit a separate error. Sure, your math adds up and your case is correct and exhibit A points to exactly what you posit as truth, but you commit an unrelated error because you've just been unloving towards your neighbor. That's a difficult truth, but an important one. If you have an unhealthy craving for controversy, it's because you enjoy it. You enjoy the confrontation. You enjoy the debate. You enjoy gloating over your opponent. You're not actually loving your opponent. Check, check your heart on this. Is there an unhealthy craving for controversy? If, if you need a tool to evaluate whether or not you're guilty of this same kind of sin that's described, would you just evaluate the fruits of your most recent online Facebook comment endeavor? Just look, look at the results. Look at the results. Okay, for all of, your, all of your typing well into the night, you guys know that feeling when you're in an online debate and the sound of your phone becomes a source of anxiety and it buzzes in your pocket like a shock collar. Ah, what is that moron typing now? All right, would you, would you consider for a minute the fruits of your endeavor? What are the results? What do you have to show for all of your time spent as an interlocutor having debated somebody? Does it, did it result in in peace? Did it result in reconciliation? Did it result in the healing of wounded hearts? Did it result in the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Did it result in somebody being saved? Or did it result in the kind of depravity that Paul catalogs here? Did it result in envy? Did it produce envy? Did it produce dissension? Did it produce slander, people insulting each other? Did it produce evil suspicions? If so, you're guilty of what Paul's describing here. Would you consider this as well? The, the operative descriptor in verse five is constant, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth. If you are constantly in a state of conflict, the problem is you. Because peacemakers who do what they set out to do actually make peace. And then there's peace, not more friction and constant conflict. So if the, if the friction in your life is ongoing and insatiable, check your heart. Because the true peacemaker will actually make peace from time to time. All right, do you have any peace to show for your endeavors? If not, see to it, see to it that you find yourself aligned with the warning that's given in this text because it's unhealthy to crave controversy. It is unhealthy to enjoy quarrels about words that only produce envy and dissension and evil suspicions and constant friction. Rather, let our endeavors result in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse six begins a teaching that is radically countercultural. We have a, he has addressed people who are enslaved in verses one and two. He's addressed false teachers and meaningless controversy. And now, look at this, verse six. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. As far as I can tell, everybody here is clothed. Okay, and if you need food, I've got a jar of pickles in my office. Which means that everybody has everything that we need to be content. Isn't that radically different from everything you see on your TV? You have everything you need to be happy right now. Totally the polar opposite of cultural teaching. You'll be happy when. I'll be happy if. If I can just get this thing, this other thing, then I'll be happy. And what happens when, when you get that thing? Okay, not so much this thing. Yes, that. When I get that thing, when I reach that level, that income, that house, that car, then I'll be happy. And then you get that thing. And then what is it? No, no. It's that thing. If I just get to that. And this lie will continue forever until you kick the bucket. Okay, that's the lie. Here's the, here's the thing. We did ministry at First Baptist Church of Windermere. Windermere is an amazing area. It includes some of the wealthiest people in the world. It's a lot like Medina. Between two campuses of First Baptist Windermere, I would pass Johnny Damon's house, Shaquille O'Neal's house, and Tiger Woods' house. Going from one campus to the next. You remember the documentary, The Queen of Versailles? It was about the most expensive house for sale in America at the time. It was a $90 million house with a window that was built overlooking the lake to see the fireworks at the Magic Kingdom. That was in Lake Butler Sound. I passed that house every time I drove from the downtown campus to the lakeside campus. Do you remember the, remember the scene when Tiger Woods crashed his escalator into a tree outside his neighborhood 
and his wife busted out the back window with a golf club and everybody thought that she was getting there to save him because he was in distress. And it turns out that is not at all what was happening there. <laughs> I passed that tree every day. I went to that Perkins a lot. Right, this, was, this was a fascinating place. As I drove through those neighborhoods, you would think, man, if Tiger is your neighbor, like you have arrived. Okay, like if, you, if, if they're making documentaries about the house a block away, the $90 million house a block away, this is it, right? You've arrived at the very top, the very zenith of Mammon, okay? Like you, are, you have arrived completely and fully and totally in one of the biggest, most expensive and luxurious houses ever. Okay, you probably drive an incredible car. I'm a huge car geek, so I was geeking out constantly. Every t- it was insufferable to ride with me because I was like, oh, wow, oh, wow, and I just, I just I geeked out on the cars everywhere. If you arrived here, you would think that you have everything in this life. The murder-suicide rate in that neighborhood was off the charts. Why? Because they fell for the lie. If you just get this, you'll be happy. Okay, no, this, you'll be happy. No, this, you'll be happy. And they finally get all of this, and the enemy is so cruel that there, having gotten it all, he would expose to them, guess what? You're just as miserable as ever, and there's nowhere to go. There's no more expensive house you could possibly buy, and you're never gonna be happy. Your misery now has more zeros and commas attached to it. You're just as miserable as you ever were before. So the murder-suicide rate in that neighborhood was off the charts. It is a lie. There is nothing in this world that will satisfy you but the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a futile endeavor to think that you'll be happy when. Did you know that God is in the business of divine sabotage? You ever consider that? That God would sabotage your endeavors to get something you think you need. Yeah, sometimes it's God's will that you not get what you're aiming for. I might just be treating the pulpit like a diary and sharing this, but I I believe I'm not the only one. God has kept me from getting things until I realized I could live without them. That does not mean that I desire them less. That's, I've heard that teaching. That's not what I agree with. I don't, I don't think like God's not gonna let you have something until it's not that big of a deal to you anymore. No, 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 no. It's that you realize you could live without it because then you receive it with gratitude and it doesn't become an idol in your life. In this teaching, it's not money itself that is the problem. Money is amoral, not immoral, as in it's an evil thing. It is amoral, meaning it is moralistically innocuous. It has no moral bearing whatsoever. Rather, it is the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evils. Did you see that in verse 10? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That love of money, that desire for more upon more upon more upon more is gonna lead you to compromise your conscience and strive and claw and sacrifice your family for ultimately something that's gonna be a raw deal and the enemy won't let you in on the terms until it's entirely too late. You've burned bridges, sacrificed relationships, besmudged your conscience, and sacrificed the best years of your life only to arrive and see that you are further away than you were when you started. This love of money is what has allowed many people to pierce themselves with pangs and fall away from the faith. Those who desire to be rich, verse nine, 
fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Be warned, my friends. Be warned here. Money is innocuous, but the love of it will cause you to sin, will lead you into temptation and ruin and destruction. Be warned, be wary, watch out. What he posits instead is something radically different, just being content. You have everything you need to be content right here and now. Nobody else is gonna teach you that. It only comes from the God. Only the Bible will tell you this. Be happy, not when. Be happy now, right now, at your current income, your current house, your current car. Why? Because they're amazing, all right? That everything you need is here, given to you from God. You have everything that you need. All right, if you have food, you have clothing, the Bible says you have everything you need to be content. This kind of thinking will grant you immunity to a lot of marketing campaigns that will try to tell you you're not happy yet. You'll be happy when. Become this kind of person, get this kind of thing. If you, if you grasp this contentment, you can take the discounted rate to go on the vacation and hear the timeshare sales pitch and say, no thanks, but thanks for the cheap vacation. <laughs> Nobody will be able to sell you on anything because you're already content right where you are. You'll be a salesman, worst nightmare. Happy, content, I have Christ, I have godliness, I have the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a soul that is sinful and was headed towards hell, but because of Jesus, I'm headed towards heaven when I die and nothing can take that away from me. That's unshakable, indestructible joy. I don't care what the market does. My soul belongs to the Savior who sits on the throne, who's the King of kings and the Lord of lords forevermore. Nothing in this life can take away my joy. That is radical contentment. And it's available only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing, nothing else in this world will satisfy you like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's such exquisite beauty. And did you see the, 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 turn, that, the, the turn that Paul takes in verse 11? But as for you, O man of God, get used to this. This is part of the inspiration for why we called this series Bold Church. Because he describes the world and what's, what's happening in ancient Ephesus, which bears such striking resemblance to what's happening in our context today. He says, this is what's happening in the world. This is what the people of the world are doing. But as for you, O man of God, this is what... The, this is what craziness that people around you believe, but as for you, Christian, but as for you, it calls for a radical, radical departure from the norm. Let the world believe whatever craziness it wants to believe. In its face, we will be a bold church. Amen, Highlands? Let the world believe what it believes, but as for you, Christian, believe this way. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, from whence comes steadfastness. Unfortunately, it's only through turbulence and time. You can't just say, I'm steadfast, look. No, you have to endure turbulence over time and then you can claim steadfastness. There's only one way steadfastness is proven. And that's through turbulence and through time. Gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith. See that in verse 12? Fight, fight, Desi, fight. That sounds really impolite. Fight. I'm in a fight? I thought I could just like quietly believe in Jesus and everybody would respect my worldview and extend to me the same tolerance that I demanded for others. No, 
No, just by believing in Jesus, you believe something offensive. You're in a fight alongside God against evil itself. Fight the good fight. This is what you agreed to when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. Now fight the good fight. Did you see his reference to Pontius Pilate in verse 13? Isn't that interesting? What was Pontius Pilate? He was the man who had nominal authority over the trial of Jesus. And he asked the question, what is truth? I think this is striking because Paul is juxtaposing the man of God with Pontius Pilate, with the world that is lost. All right, let Pontius Pilate ebb and flow in what his definition of knowledge is and what his definition for truth is and his understanding of what is moral and what is immoral. Let him believe whatever he believes. As for you, man of God, be like Jesus who held to the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Let the world believe whatever craziness it wants to believe. But as for you, Christian, he charges Timothy in the presence of God who gives life to all things and Christ Jesus, who is in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. A clear conscience is worth more than a full bank account which he will display at the proper time. This is, this is such eloquent, eloquent wording. It is absolutely incredible. This teaching about radical contentment, despite what happens in our lives, knowing that we, we've taken nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of it, it reminds me of Job. Anybody else think of Job when you see that verse? All right, what did Job say? After he lost everything, Job, in Job 1, 20 through 22, then Job arose and tore his robe. He's at a sign of intense grief because his, his, all of his possessions and his family have been taken away from him, had, and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It is the scam of human history that the devil would get off scotch-free and people would blame God with wrongdoing. In the story of Job, God is sovereign, but the devil is responsible. Do not sin by accusing God of wrongdoing. Even the tornadoes, the natural disasters that killed Job's family were brought upon him by the devil himself. God is sovereign, yes, but the devil was responsible. You can do everything right and still lose everything. Just ask Job, why did Job lose everything? Think about the backstory to Job, chapters one and two. Why did Job lose it all? It was precisely because he did the right thing. Precisely because he walked with God. He was a target picked out by the devil himself to test his faith and say the only reason Job loves you is you never let anything bad happen to him. But if you remove your hand from him and the hedge of protection you have around him, he'll curse you to your face. And so God provided parameters within which Satan could attack, and Satan took full advantage, even bringing upon natural disasters upon Job's family to kill them. And in response, Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, he takes away. And Job did not sin by accusing God of wrongdoing. Likewise, let us not sin by accusing God of wrongdoing. God is sovereign, but the devil's responsible. I went to Chihuly's gallery and I loved what I saw, so I decided to take some with me. I brought a cart and I found beautiful pieces and I would put them in my cart. You know, I'd come upon another display and I'd say, oh, kids, go get that. And so they'd get and they'd fill up my cart. And, and I, I amassed a really impressive collection as I, as I pushed this cart around the gallery. I'll have that, I'll have that. And, and then, you know, people didn't understand what I was doing. 
was walking around this gallery. I, I saw what I wanted, so I took it, you know? And, and like, if they had any work ethic, they would have taken art too. They are just jealous of my collection. I didn't understand it. Just growing up, they were all like, you can't take that with you, the morons. You know, uh, put that back, security. You put a shirt on, one woman suggested. And so eventually, I just took my collection of beautiful art pieces, I worked my way towards the exit, and then eventually was tackled at the door by security. You can't take any of this stuff with you. Okay, don't brag on your collection because none of it's actually yours anyway. And don't condescend to other people who have smaller collections because it's not theirs either, okay? You cannot take any of your worldly possessions with you past the grave. None of it matters ultimately. All of it's meaningless in the end. Naked, you came into the world. Naked, you will go. You've taken nothing with you into the world. You can take nothing with you out of the world. Bragging on your possessions as though they're of eternal significance is like bragging on the things you take off the walls at an art gallery. You can't take it with you when you go. Keep it in proper perspective, my friends. Keep it in proper, proper perspective. Did you see in verse 17? Okay, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. All right, look, uh, rich people, this is your portion, okay? So, so rich people, Paul told me to tell you something, okay? He left you a message, okay? Paul says you should not be haughty, and he said you're not supposed to set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, and Paul wants you to trust in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, he says that you are to do good. He said you would know what that means. To be rich in good works. And Paul, he left, he left a written copy of the note for you. It's in the seats with you. He told you to be generous and to be ready to share and that you would store up treasures for yourself and a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of the life that is truly life. That means rich people with your caviar-covered avocado toast. You haven't actually lived yet, man. You may have flown in your Gulfstream jet to like every continent, but you haven't actually lived yet until you've lived for Jesus Christ, until you know why you live, why we live, where right and wrong come from. And there's redemption for this fallen world, a truly life. It comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. Did you see the word enjoy in verse 17? I feel like that's important. We often overlook that one. Enjoy. It's also, it's clever too. See the wording that he uses? God richly provides everything. <laughs> Get it? Who's really rich here? It's God. Think you're rich because you got a yacht on the ocean? You know what God owns? The oceans. <laughs> okay, like compared to God, you are dirt poor. No, no, it's not even your dirt. It's God's dirt. You're not even dirt poor compared to God. Like, you have nothing compared to God. So be humble, be generous, live a godly life. Take hold of life that is truly life. And you see the word enjoy? That's also important. I don't want you to take this teaching and go the opposite direction with it because there's another end of the spectrum on heresy. And you could teach asceticism, which is ultimately meaningless. That even Solomon, author of Ecclesiastes, would say is meaningless. To never enjoy the fruits of your labor, that's also a trap from the enemy because it's meaningless. It's meaningless to just miss out on that. So do enjoy it. Here's what I propose we do when we get home. You just enjoy everything God has given you. Enjoy 
your view of Mount Rainier. Enjoy hugs and kisses. Enjoy a good cup of coffee in the morning. Enjoy your front door. Okay, I know that sounds weird because you've never taken the time to enjoy it. It's because you take it for granted. Okay, like, enjoy it. We live in Seattle. There are a large number of people who live in our community who wish they had a front door, but you have one. So do you thank God for it? <laughs> My neighbor from Highlands is so weird. It took like 10 minutes to just walk in his house. Just stood outside weeping. <laughs> just thank God for your beautiful front door. I'm gonna do it right now. God, thank you for my Florida State Seminoles. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for the wreath that my, my, my wife makes for the front door. Thank God for your beautiful front door. Yeah, but Jesse, I don't, have, I don't ever go through my front door because I use the garage door opener. I press the button and it opens up and I can drive my car into my house in a good way. Think about that for a second. That is amazing. You have a robot that opens your house and your car, which is fueled by exploding dinosaurs, can go into it. Thank God. You see how amazing your life is? My neighbor's so weird, just sat in his garage weeping for 30 minutes. Like, thank God, enjoy every good thing that God has given you. Enjoy your lunch and give God glory for it. Enjoy your home, enjoy your family, enjoy your car. Unless it's a Prius, obviously. Enjoy all the good things that God has given you. If you have a smartphone in your pocket, that means you enjoy a standard of living that is light years beyond the vast majority of people who have lived in the whole duration of human history. So thank God for everything. You have everything you need to be content right now. Just the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Thank God for his goodness. Thank God for all of it. Can we close with this beautiful doxology? Do you see, do you see the, the words that Paul writes about God, beginning in verse 15, exhorting Timothy, speaking about Jesus, encouraging Timothy to be above reproach, absolute integrity. He speaks of Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. He's the only one who's in control. Okay, you are in the free market of ideas. You can worship anybody you want, but there's only one who's in control. That's Jesus. There's only one King of kings, that's Jesus. There's only one Lord of lords, and that's Jesus. He alone has immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light. Isn't that amazing? Unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see. My skeptical friend, you're demanding. If I could just see proof of God, I would believe. No, you can't, you can't see him. He dwells in unapproachable light to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. If the Holy Spirit of God is drawing upon you like, my heart is dying to sing that anthem, would you make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Take hold of a life that is truly life. Forget the stupid, meaningless things in this world that have left you unsatisfied and give your life to Jesus and take life, hold of a life that is truly life, the only sovereign, the only king of kings, the only Lord of lords who dwells in unapproachable approachable light to whom belongs immortality, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Place your faith not in the things of this world, but only in Jesus. If God has drawn upon your heart right now to be saved, you pray with me. God, 
I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess, God, that I have sinned and I've fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you father except through Jesus you can have everything in this world just give me Jesus just give me Jesus I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord Highlands Community Church would you say Jesus is Lord say it Jesus is Lord I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead now God let me be saved let me be saved let me be saved in Jesus name amen would you stand and worship with us some of us for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus Christ